Hello and welcome to the EDH Retcast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined as always by my fantastic co-hosts. First up, the Selesnia evangelist, it's Matt Morgan. So Joey, during quarantine, I've taken to using my spare toilet paper rolls as dumbbells. I call it double ply-ometrics. I, I hope that it is effective. Wow. You got to get those mad gains. Really? Oh, they're, they're, they're the sickest gains, <laughs> as it were. Next, the guy who, uh, who can't pick a guild because none of them are hipster enough for him. That's Dana Roach. Uh, this show is going to air in kind of the, the, the valley between Mother's Day and Father's Day. I want to point out there's 10 magic cards that have mother or grandmother in the title. There's one with father or grandfather. There's none with Joey. <gasps> I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means either, but I think I'm offended. Because I'm a, because, because Matt and I are the, are the mother and father of the show. Oh. Oh, that's what you were going for. I, I don't I, know what this was supposed to mean, but let's just move Yeah, on. this is an awkward way to start the show, but whatever, <laughs> we're committing to it. This is the EDH RecCast. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web <sighs> for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, in addition to bringing you strange jokes and awkward pauses, what we like to do is give all that data on EDH Rec a little more context. Hey guys, what are we talking about this week? This week, we are going to do all sorts of challenge stats provided by you, the listeners. That is right. We love doing challenge stats all the time on this show, but now we are turning the spotlight on to everyone out there who is provided with awesome emails and awesome comments. They've been delivering awesome challenges to us this whole time. And so what we wanted to do is knock a bunch of them out right now and showcase what the listeners think are under or overplayed cards on EDHREX. So that's going to be our show. But before we get to it, we have to give a huge thank you to Josh Lequai and the folks over at the Command Zone podcast who handle all of the post-production work on this podcast, making it look as awesome as it possibly can. And of course, we've got to stop and thank our sponsors. So the first sponsor we want to thank, obviously, Card Kingdom. Just cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC for all your Magic Gathering needs. They help provide prices on the website and help support the show. And our second sponsor is TCG Player. For, again, any of your uh, EDH card needs, I actually just placed an order on Friday for some cards I want for a deck to play um, in a stream with you guys coming up this week. And they showed up today on Monday. They're already slipped up and good to go. So get ready to... Uh, face the fury of my new deck this week. <laughs> really excited for it. Yeah, they are great. They provide the price information on EDHREC, so you can just click on those price links and it will take you right to their storefronts. Or if you do use Card Kingdom, you can visit cardkingdom.com slash EDHREC and it really helps support the show. Gotta love our sponsors. Really, really awesome. And now we're going to move on to our main topic because you know what else is awesome is our listeners who have provided us with a bunch of different challenge stats we want to go over here. Uh, real quick before we get there though, there was kind of a fun journey that we noticed when one of our listeners uh, actually ended up becoming a writer for EDHREC. So shout out to Jevin, one of our writers, who now has a Challenge the Stats series on EDHREC. So you can check out his articles there too if you want to see some other challenges for different commanders and stuff like that. This is just a really great segment that we've really enjoyed doing and it's really resonating with other people out there too. So just wanted to pause and acknowledge that because it's really awesome to see all these challenges and to see what people are doing with it. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting to see other people's takes. You know, it's I've kind of gotten used to our thought processes between the three of us. So always having listeners submit and, you know, 
Obviously, people enjoy that bit, so it's always nice to see people sending in their thoughts, their challenges, and we just want to say thanks for those, and we want to showcase a few of them that we thought were particularly interesting. Absolutely. Real quick, before we do get into them, uh, we did have, you know, some of these emails come from a couple of weeks ago or sometimes even up to a month ago, so some of the data may have changed in between when uh, the listener wrote that email and when we're actually recording this show, um, but... You know, that's data that we will we'll be fine with that. We'll make a note of it whenever we notice it. Um, but then also, hey, guys, if other folks while they're listening come up with a challenge that they want to submit to the show, how can they do that? You can just contact us at edhreccast at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter or any of the other social media platforms we're on. We're on Facebook. I think we have an Instagram, I believe. <laughs> we do um, indeed. So, like, we're everywhere. So just do a search for Trekcast, and you will find some way to contact us. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome to hear. And so we just love collecting data and we love uh, collecting these challenges from folks too, because there are some cards on this list that we're going to get into that I'd never even heard before. So I'm really excited to get into this. All right. All of that preamble, let's get it out of the way. Dana, who is our first challenger of stats? The first challenger we have is Steve Bray. He's a level one judge from Michigan. And the card Steve is challenging is Slate of Ancestry. It's a four mana artifact and it has four mana, tap, discard your hand, and draw a card for each creature you control. Uh, it's currently in 2,210 decks, which is 1% of the decks that could run it. And he'd like to submit it as his uh, challenge of submission. since it's vastly underplayed in any creature-based deck, whether it be graveyard-centric or token-heavy. It can be a powerhouse, especially in Mardu Go Wide strategies. Just a few for some thought. Thank you very much for all the entertainment. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much, Steve. Guys, have you ever used Slate of Ancestry before in any of your decks? What do you think of this card? Uh, years ago with the original Yadric, I had a mono white, I think it was kind of a soldier tribal deck, or at the very least, very go wide with tokens, many of which were soldiers. I ran it in that deck. Um, it was pretty good. It was not always reliable. It was one of those cards that like sometimes you'd have it out when like, oh, I could draw four or five cards right now, but the two I have in my hand are really, really useful and I want to hold on to them. Or you just wouldn't have creatures out when you needed it. Um, but in Mono White, you can't always necessarily be too picky when it comes to draw. So um, it's a really, really tempting card. Myself, I always felt like I really wanted it in like a White or Boros deck that wanted stuff in the graveyard. I felt like the added synergy there was something you wanted that as an upside, not a downside. And I could never quite find like the right deck where it fit. Oh man. See like that cost of like, oh yeah, it's basic mana, but then you discard your hand before you draw the cards, right? Yeah. Dana, right. that's an upside. Getting rid of cards in your hand, putting stuff into the graveyard. Right. That's a good thing. I'm, I'm just saying I never found the deck where that was what I wanted to do myself with it. Well, yeah. Leave it to Joey to want to be discarding <laughs> cards. I mean, go figure. Uh, I, I do like, I, I see why the appeal is there, but I also see Dana's point as well. Discarding your hand, especially if you've found a key card or two, say you have a, a Teferi's Protection in a mono white deck or, or a counter spell that you need to keep around, it can be risky discarding some of those key cards in order to find more. Um, on the other side, though, if you're playing a deck like Edric, Spymaster Tress, where you're playing out your entire hand real quick, that can be a very powerful effect too. So I think if you're if you're very, very specific, yeah, if you're playing the, uh, the Mardu... 
uh, precon commander that's all about humans, if you're playing out your hand real quick, sure, I could see that being a very, very powerful card there. I don't think it needs to go on every creature heavy deck. Because uh, like I said, there there is some downside. Discarding your hand to some people is a downside. So <laughs> some people don't listen to don't listen to Joey all the time, just most of the time. I don't know. I don't know that Edric necessarily needs this one because Edric really True. likes the low to the ground stuff. But especially you know going away from Simic and into the Mardu colors, I can totally see if you're trying to swarm mm-hmm. the field, this can draw you a lot more cards than I think people probably initially think when they see it. So I'm totally here for it, especially for colors that like to swarm and also have trouble with card advantage in other ways. Daniel, like you mentioned, Audric, I think that's a great place for it. So I'm totally here for this one. I feel like one of the, the places that might really shine is like Verena Lich Queen, where Ooh, yeah. your synergy with zombies, a lot of those cards tend to be perfectly fine if they're in the graveyard, things like Grave Crawler and what have you. So there's definitely decks where it's absolutely a powerhouse. I could just never find like the exact mix in anything I was running, but it's a super cool card. See, Dana, discarding is an upside. That's it the is, ultimate lesson for sure. Here. All right, let's move on to our next challenger. So the next challenge is coming from MDitsyDo on Twitter. Uh, They're going to challenge Praetor's Grasp, which is one black black for a sorcery. It says, search target opponent's library for a card and exile it face down. Then that player shuffles their library. You may look at and play that card for as long as it remains exiled. So MDitsyDo said, hey guys, I have a challenge for you. I noticed one of my favorite black spells, Praetor's Grasp is only in 3% of decks that can run it. While I'm not going to say it should be in every black deck ever, it's way too low for what it can do. Unless you have some really bad luck uh, with the matchup, it's a great toolbox card, grabbing anything from a soul ring to a crucial combo piece. Grab an instant, and now you've got a trick that's immune to hand disruption. There have been many games I've won where I've nabbed someone else's Cyclonic Rift or Counterspell, and the mind games it starts... Uh, means it's never a bad card to see. And Praetor's Grasp is currently in 4,600 decks, uh, only 3%, like Mditsi Do said, of eligible decks. That's just any deck playing black. What do you guys think of Praetor's Grasp being underplayed? So this might be an interesting time to talk about why cards are sometimes underplayed. Um, and this is a good example, particularly when you contrast it with someone like Flight of Ancestry that we just talked about. Praetor's Grasp is a really good card, but it's the kind of card that, if you don't know it's already out there, you have to be searching for something really particular to find it if you're doing like a scryfall search or something. So if you're not like just looking for steel effects, it's not the kind of card you're going to stumble across. And it hasn't had a printing in like nine years. It's, it's been printed one time in New Phyrexia in 2011. So this is a card that probably doesn't see play in large part because players don't have it or don't even know it's there. Whereas, you know, if you're playing mono white and you're just going to do a search for draw, which is a relatively common thing to search for in white, you're going to stumble across Flight of Ancestry. Mm. Um, So I I find that kind of fascinating. You have cards that are underplayed for different reasons. And one of the reasons this one probably isn't played, I would guess it's just not something you see in binders. And if you're a player who's only been playing for the last few years, you may just have never seen it full stop. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense to me too. It also might kind of appear to be one of those cards that, you know, for example, if you are playing a Gaunti deck, then this totally strikes you as the type of card that would really synergize with what your deck is already doing. But if you are playing just another black deck, this doesn't necessarily scream any individual theme. And sometimes we actually get cards that are generically powerful lost in the shuffle a little bit because they are so ubiquitous. That can sometimes increase a card's numbers, but sometimes it also means that they don't feel like they have any 
particular home. And that sometimes, you know, trods down on their numbers a little bit too. And I think that might, in addition to its, you know, hasn't been printed since 2011, might that also might be another thing that sort of affects its numbers. I'm totally here for it though. The times that I have seen uh, someone use a Praetor's Grasp, even on an opponent or on me, and I'm just like, but what did they take? What could they have? Like, it's right. actually really, yeah. really like weird as an opponent on that. Like even just the mind games, like they mentioned, is a, a really great thing to be able to kind of play with your opponent's emotions in that way. And that can also be a, a form of power, even if all you're grabbing is someone else's soul ring. Yeah, I think the only downside to this is it has the old text of when you were stealing things. And correct me if I'm wrong, you can't use mana of any color to mm. cast those spells that you're stealing. So I think there are better versions. Like like we said, Gaunti is kind of a similar effect, but you can use mana of any color. Uh, so some of those more open bridges to actually cast those spells a little bit easier, I'm, I'm, I would maybe favor those over Praetor's Grasp, but it is a good hate card. Um, now, if you want to be devoting slots to hate cards, I think that's kind of playgroup dependent. But if you do have a lot of combo players in your playgroups that you're playing with, um, then yeah, Praetor's Grasp might be something good. I mean, I know if somebody stole my Walking Ballista and my Miri Weatherlight Duelist deck, uh, I'd probably be a little fussy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think we also probably should point out here that um, if you're going to add this to your deck, maybe wait a couple months just because right now when everyone's playing on webcam, yes, um, <laughs> probably not a great card to try to play with when you know there's point. no one's library good. near you to search through. <laughs> good point. Yeah, very good point indeed. All right, let's move on to our next challenger. This person got in touch with us by email, but asked to just go by the moniker NDH77, very mysterious. Uh, the, the card that they recommended, though, isn't mysterious at all. In fact, it's just going to wallop you right in the head because we are talking about Kozilek, the Great Distortion, in Kethis, the Hidden Hand decks. So, just to set the stage, Kozilek, the Great Distortion, is the 10-mana 12-12 legendary Eldrazi. This does cost two specifically colorless mana. Uh, when you cast Kozilek, the Great Distortion, if you have fewer than seven cards in hand, you draw cards equal to that difference. Kozilek has Menace, and you can discard a card with converted mana cost of X, and you counter target spell with converted mana cost of X. Really, really cool there. And we're looking at it in the context of Kethis, the Hidden Hand. This is the Obzon 3-mana three 3-4 three, Elf Advisor. Legendary spells cost one less to cast for you, and you can exile two legendary cards from your graveyard, and until end of turn, each legendary card in your graveyard gains. You may play this card from your graveyard. So NDH77 said, Joey, as a big fan of the vastly underrated Kethis the Hidden Hand, I enjoyed reading your Commander Showdown article on Kethis versus Captain Cisse on the website. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun to write. Uh, and they continue, I believe I found a considerably underused card for Kethis, Kozilek the Great Distortion. Kozilek does everything you could possibly want. It protects your board, draws cards, and dumps things in the graveyard. Additionally, with Kethis on board, Kozilek costs one less to cast and to recur, so the interaction works in both directions. What do you guys think of Kozilek and Kethis? I, I don't think the power level has ever been a concern. It's just the, <laughs> the, the cost uh, to getting Kozilek out, not in the, the total CMC, but you're kind of playing a fourth color with the true colorless. Now, if you have a soul ring or any uh, colorless mana generating uh, lands or artifacts, sure. Uh, but I think that's something that I think kind of discourages people, which is why they might shy away from Kozilek. But yeah, being able to discard cards, counter all sorts of stuff, it's 
It's a, a wallop, to say the least. Absolutely. Kozilek is actually only showing up in 12 Kethis decks at the moment. And Kethis has like 638 on the website. I really like that point, though. Like, this is a way to fill up the graveyard if you need it, and you can get it back to refill your hand. And the, the Kethis decks that I, I've seen do have the tendency of, since he's a cost reducer, they play out their entire hand. So being able to refill it is really cool. But additionally, they tend to run a lot of legendary lands because that's other fuel for Kethis' uh, ability. And there are a lot of legendary lands that specifically produce colorless mana as well, which kind of nicely slots in for Kozilek's requirement. It, it does, but it's also balanced by the fact that it's a three-color deck, so you're probably not running many utility lands, and you're in green, so you probably tend to lean into land ramp versus artifact ramp that makes colorless mana. Um, so it's, you know, a, maybe a little easier to hit it in the regard, in the regard that you have the legendary lands, but I think it's probably also harder to hit it in that you're lacking the utility lands and you're running the land for ramp versus artifacts. So six of one, half dozen of the other. I don't know if it is necessarily easy to cast. I, I would bet that's the biggest hang up. Someone looks at that and thinks, okay, it would be great in my deck, but I have to change my mana base significantly to make it consistent. And I think that's a tough ask sometimes. Um, but it's a super logic. Like it makes sense for the deck. All the all the points um, that the the poster made about how it does the things you want, it absolutely does. Right. So to quote a necromancer that we know, who, <laughs> who who's who actually it? who casts their creatures? <laughs> Why not just reanimate them? Um, well, Kethis I think casts some, your creatures. Somebody somebody has said that before. I don't know yes. who, but yes, yeah, it is true though. Kethis does actually want to be casting the creatures because that's what a cost reducing legend wants to do so it's kind of a give and take there i do like the potential though i, yes, I definitely do like the potential once kozlek's in play because then your your graveyard just going to get very very large very quick yeah i think that's what dana was saying he's not saying oh it's bad because of these reasons it's people aren't playing it in this deck because of those reasons those yeah i was small. speaking to yep, yep. Yeah, small psychological kind of barriers numbers. that kind of get in the yep. way. But yeah. the, the synergy is totally there. If you can discard cards to counter your opponent's spells and then Kethis will let you cast those things so you're not actually truly discarding them, that sounds like amazing synergy to me. So see, guys, discarding is an upside. <laughs> what did I tell you? Uh, <laughs> All right, let's move on. a different example. Let's move on to our next one. Uh, next up is from a listener, Wyatt Loudit. Um, and the card being suggested here is Abishan's Desire. It's in 117 decks. That's it of the possible 180,000. Uh, it's a one mana aura. Enchanted creature has flying and it has threshold. So as long as you have seven or more cards in your graveyard, the enchanted creature can't be the target of spells or abilities. So it has shroud. And what Wyatt writes us is, I have a suggestion for a card that nobody seems to play, but has been extremely useful in one of my decks. And I plan to acquire more copies for other decks. The card is Abishan's Desire, and it can be useful for any deck that involves instant sorceries like Niv-Mizzet or Elsha, but I find it particularly good on my Maldrotha deck since it's a permanent that can be cast from the graveyard. Shroud for one man is helpful, and it's almost always active with Threshold in Maldrotha. Lightning Greaves is better since it gives haste, but redundancy is good. Wish you all the best and keep up the great work. Guys, remember how I said at the beginning of this show that there were so many cards in this episode that I'd never even heard of? We found one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, now, well, Odyssey is is a little before your time, young Joseph. So. Uh, how dare you? I was born like the same year <laughs> as Magic. I can't even believe you. Matt, you've got a Muldrotha deck. Have uh, you had the same experiences uh, that Wyatt quotes here about uh, your 
um, need to protect Muldrotha and like, I don't know, does this strike you as being like really good? Would you like, because I think this is totally sweet. So Wyatt has taken a feeling that I've had many times about this card, but just took it the extra step. Um, I've seen Abishan's Desire in boxes of cards that I have and I look at it and I do a double take. I'm like, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I can find space for it in that protection because there's, you already have artifacts like Whisper Silk Cloak, Greaves, uh, Swiftfoot Boots, a lot of access to those that don't go away. So when we're talking about cards like Niv-Mizzet or Elsha, I'm not a big fan because if there's a board wipe, Abishan's Desire doesn't really help protect from that. Moldrotha though, I do like because even if there is a, a Wrath of God, kills Moldrotha no matter what, you can still recast Abishan's Desire as your enchantment. Right. And having played an enchant or a Moldrotha deck, enchantments are typically the hardest card type to find something cheap that you want to be recasting. So Abishan's Desire in a Moldrotha deck, I do actually think uh, could be a little underplayed. And those other two that we talked about, not so much. I think I might just rather have a counterspell. But in Moldrotha's deck specifically, I do like this challenge. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those commanders where you can never have too little protection for Moldrotha mm -hmm. because that is your entire engine. And this is something that you can repeatedly get that protection back. Seems really nice. And I love that it turns Moldrotha into a flyer because a thing that a Moldrotha deck sometimes runs into is that they have the ability to get a lot of value, but sometimes finding a way to turn that value into victory is a little tough. Yep. Well, giving Moldrotha an ability to become a huge 6-6 flying blocker or a 6-6 flying attacker to actually close out the game with some commander damage now that it's evasive, that's also pretty cool in addition to the Shroud. Yeah, big big flying trees are, are pretty deadly, I hear. <laughs> well, and there's actually, there's cards that are, I guess I wouldn't say strictly worse, but like generally worse, air bladder and flight, what? both of which are one mana that just give flying. Did you just say bladder. the words air bladder? Air bladder yes. is an aura in the game that exists. Josh Lee Kwai will put it on the screen right yes. now. Um, and, and they're Magic. both almost always going to be worse in Abishan's Desire um, just because they don't have the threshold clause. So if you're running one of those two cards, at the very least, this is worth upgrading. Yep. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm looking up this card, and um, can we take that image <laughs> off of the screen now? I'm actually not happy that I looked at that. <laughs> I can't believe that's a card. What is happening with that? Magic is a weird game, y'all. <laughs> 1997 was a weird year, so I think that's all we need to say before moving on. To uh, our, let's not make fun of the year challenge. when Joey was born. Uh, hey, hey, <laughs> Matt was trying to move on. Let's let him commit to this segue. Right. Let's let's do this. <laughs> so our next challenge comes from Alan Stern, and so Alan is challenging shielding plaques in Yarok the Desecrated decks. Now Yarok. Everybody knows what that is by now. It's that big, gnarly, soul-tie elemental that doubles all your enter the battlefield triggers. But Shielding Plaques is one that a lot of people probably haven't heard of. It's only in 24 decks of the nearly 2,500 Yarok decks. So Shielding Plaques is two and a hybrid Simic, so hybrid blue and green, for an enchantment aura that says, uh, when Shielding Plaques enters the battlefield, draw a card. An enchanted creature can't be the target of spells or abilities your opponents control. So... Alan says in his email, I have a Yark the Desecrated deck that I kind of love. It's kind of gotten more time to brew and upgrade budget uh, more than most of my any other decks. This also means, though, I'm keenly aware of how much removal Yarok eats. My challenge stats is Shielding Plaques, two generic and hybrid Simic mana for an aura that when it enters, you draw a card. An enchanted creature has Hexproof. The triggered ability will double with Yarok. Drawing two cards and protecting my commander is exactly what the deck wants to do. That said, it's only in 24 decks of the currently 2,254 decks. 
which has changed a little bit on the site. A little bit. Just a little bit. Uh, but drawing two and hexproof is an insane deal for three mana. In my deck, I run multiple flash enablers. So doing this in response to a kill spell also is a huge tempo play. Alan, I, I dig your challenge quite a bit, actually. Yeah, absolutely. And Alan ended his email thanking us for doing what we do and letting us know that um, while unfortunately he is not healthy at the current time, he hopes everyone else out there stays safe and healthy. So we just want to thank him a quick recovery and that we also, you know, we wish everyone else out there stay safe, stay healthy. And Alan, we hope that you keep doing what you're doing too, because this is a legit challenge. I'm totally here for it. I think people tend to knee jerk towards not running auras if it isn't like an Enchantress deck, just because of the possibility of being two for one. Um, but man, being able to draw two cards off of that, I think really offsets it. Mm -hmm. I, I, it would be tough, um, to run it over lightning Greaves, but I think I would, I think like impulsively I would have put Greaves in the deck and just not thought about this. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm, I, I feel like I would probably <laughs> pick this over Greaves. I think it's a better call. Yeah. What do you guys See, think? See, I, I don't know if I would put Greaves in a Yarok deck because would, yeah. the, does the haste really matter that much in a Yarok deck? Probably not. Probably not. Whereas Shielding Plaques, if this only you know drew you one card, that would already be good. But it's a divination that makes your creature hexproof. Like if you compare this to Abishan's Desire that we just talked about, if Abishan's Desire drew you a card, it would, I guarantee it would be in way more cards in addition to, or and it, it'd be in way more decks, I should say. So seeing shielding plaques, um, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it, this is a very, very good find. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Alan's point is definitely that you got to keep Yara protected. So this might be more of a both yeah. and conversation than an either or conversation. Mm -hmm. But finding True. a protective element that also, if you are flashing it in to, you know, just totally negate someone else's removal spell that they pointed at Yarek with flash speed and you draw cards off of that, like that is a really sick feeling. And that's totally the kind of thing I can get behind. All right, let's move now to Corey Roberson's challenge. This is on a card that, again, I had never heard of it is Telum Tor's Edict. <laughs> One mana red instant from I want to say Mirage because there's a palm tree on it and it removes from the game target permanent you own or control and you draw a card at the beginning of the next turn's upkeep. Specifically Corey is looking at this in the context of Yasova Dragonclaw. Yasova Dragonclaw being the three mana four two human warrior with trample that at the beginning of combat on your turn you may pay three mana that's one generic and then two is it hybrids. If you do you gain control of target creature and opponent controls with power less than Yasova's until end of turn, you untap the creature and it gains haste until end of turn. So you're just temporarily taking some other people's stuff if you've got enough power for your sofa. So Corey writes, I recently started listening to the podcast and have been loving it. A card I'd love to see you guys challenge is Telem Tor's Edict. It's only in 66 total decks on EDA Trek and not a single one of them is helmed by Yasova Dragonclaw. One mana to exile the temporarily stolen creature and then draw a card is amazing. And yet for some reason, this card's only being run in 55 Zada decks instead of Yasova. But Zada would make the worst of the one mana cantrix because this would exile your whole team. So yeah, totally different. We've got a kind of a twofer here. That's like, don't play this one in Zada. It is a cantrip, but that would get rid of all of your stuff. That might not be worth it. But the possibility of taking someone's creature with Yasova, attacking them with it, and then instead of giving it back, you exile it and then draw a card. Y'all, Corey, you're mean. I'm much more concerned about people that are playing in their Zada deck. <laughs> that, that is true. I, I wonder how many of them think it's like a blink effect versus a permanent exile. Because I'm really struggling to think of many situations where you would want to exile your entire team just to draw a few cards when Zada decks tend to have so many other draw options. 
Right. Zada being the four mana goblin ally. Whenever you cast an instant or sorcery that targets only Zada, you copy that spell for each of your other creatures. Uh, and then each one of those spells copies a different one of those creatures. So you can get, you know, cantrips are really great for Zada because if you target Zada with one of the cantrips, say like target creature gains haste, you draw a card, then you'll do that for all of your creatures and then you'll draw many, many cards. So this probably looks like a card that's great because, hey, it draws you a card at the next turn. That's cool. But it permanently gets rid of your stuff. And that's much better when you're stealing other people's stuff than when you're using it on your own. So super like it for Yasova for sure. But we're actually not done with Zada just yet. We got another challenge that is also about Zada. So Jonas Widman actually sent us in a challenge of stats for Zada Hedron Grinder specifically. That card is Soul's Fire. Soul's Fire is an instant for two and a red target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to any target. It's currently showing up in 22% of the 851 Zada Hedron Grinder decks. And Jonas is saying this is overplayed. So Jonas said, although I only found your podcast a month ago, I've been listening to every single episode already. Kudos to Jonas already for that one, because that's that's impressive. No kidding. Uh, But Jonas also says, this challenge concerns Zada Hedron Grinder decks. Zada allows you to copy spells targeting only it. So the challenge is for the card named Soul's Fire that is played in almost a quarter of all Zada decks and reads target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to any target. I'm no judge, but I think the spell wouldn't be copied by Zada's ability since it, since it would only have two targets, Zada, for example, and a player, which means it doesn't target only Zada. If that's true, it should be played in 0% of Zada decks, not over 20%. Thank you for all you, all you do and a wonderful podcast. Now, I'm... If I'm not a judge either, so if Jonas <laughs> is correct, um, he yeah he is absolutely correct. He's he's correct on two points that this should not be played in any Zada decks because more often than not it's going to only do one thing and that's about it. Yeah, so I I did check with judges Chad. It does work. <laughs> it does work in Zada. However, okay. you have to pick one the the same target. So target creature you control has to be Zada. <laughs> Oh, okay. as well as the target you choose has to be Zada. <sighs> oh my goodness. So this is actually a great spell if you really do want to, like the Tellemtor's Edict, get rid of your entire board. <laughs> right. Functionally, this the only thing this spell does in your Zada deck is kill your Zada. That is really, really funny. Yeah, since there are two targets for this spell, it looks like an amazing win con if you've got a bazillion goblins out, but there are two targets so it wouldn't actually replicate across your entire board. So this is a great catch. Thank you, Jonas. Your instincts are good on this one and we're totally with you here. Watch out 22% of Zada players out there because this one doesn't actually work the way that you want it to. So I mean, if challenge. your play group doesn't catch it, I guess it works the way you want it to. Oh. Now, now correct, correct me if I'm wrong though. So say you do what Dana's talking about and you you target Zada twice, would you still get the triggers for all your other creatures though and then you get to choose new targets for the second or would they all deal damage to Zada? Pretty sure that the all the targets are just copying each one of yes. those creatures. So you would you can't uh you know choose new things. No, it, it wouldn't work that way. We're, we keep trying to bend okay. and twist it, but no, we got to go with Jonas's instinct on this one cuz he's totally right. Finding well, a new win condition work. for Zada would be would be especially useful here for that that slot in the deck. Well, we we're just finding more and more layers where Jonas is correct. So let's <laughs> just uh let's go on to our next person then. Let's do it. Uh, up next, we have Crashing Drawbridge, which is a two-mana artifact creature. It's a 0-4 with Defender, and you can tap it. Creatures you control gain haste until end of turn. So this is brought to us by Dr. Tadpole. Um, to make a long story short, he says, 
crashing drawbridge, why in the world is it only seeing play in 1% of decks? I would compare it to a similar haste enablers that see plays in loads of decks, and this just isn't showing up. This thing is crazy budget-friendly and very low to the ground, so even if it does pull some removal, you should be happy to have lost a two-mana creature to someone else's removal spell. In token decks, it can be loads more effective than Lightning Greaves or Boots, and in decks revolving around tap abilities, it's a star, and even in Voltron decks, it can make you take out a player that much quicker. Let me know what you think, but I think this card is seriously underplayed. It's in just 2,681 decks right now, which is 1% of the decks that can run it. So well, I think, Dr. Tadpole, I think you should be Dr. Bullfrog, actually. No, I'm not upset <laughs> at all. Nope. Great pick. I, I, I agree 100%. Oh, my, y'all are breaking me down this episode. <laughs> I cannot. No, I, this is super great. I've actually been toying with this one in uh, my Titania deck, actually, because this would be another haste enabler. And not everyone can afford like a concordant crossroads or heaven forbid, an Acroma's Memorial. Like a lot of the haste enablers outside of red are really, really expensive. And you know what isn't? A crashing drawbridge. And when you make a bazillion tokens and you just want to hit someone with them, this is a really, really good option. And even with the haste enablers that I do have in my Titania deck, I still feel like I need more. And Crashing Drawbridge is on my shortlist for that deck. Super here for it. This seems very underplayed. I think it's one of those cards that's kind of easy to mentally look past. I remember when the set came out and the card was spoiled, like mentally looking at it and being like, oh, it's a colorless haste enabler for your whole team. That seems pretty good. Um, moving on. And then I said, like mentally, I just like skipped past it. I, I didn't put two and two together until, you know, multiple days later, I'm reading the, set, the the cards again. I'm like, how did I not bump on that when it first came out? That's a colorless haste enabler. Like there's yeah. not a bunch of those. It's the one of the few that does that and it's two mana. So I, yep. I don't know why that is, but it's just the kind of card I think that people, their brains just kind of scan past it because it's a, it's a cheap, unassuming common from a recent set that's got to be it right the yeah. rarity symbol makes you think oh it can't be like commander sometimes feels like a wall-to-wall rares yeah. format right but no like commons make a really big impact and this is totally one of them well and, it, and it's a creature so it, you know if you're in green and don't have the concordant crossroads it's easy to tutor up it's an artifact so if you're in blue or even white sometimes it's easy to tutor up in those colors as well it's something that you can actually fish out of your library fairly easily too if you really need the haste yeah, no, totally love it. Thank you, Dr. Tadpole, or I guess Dr. Bullfrog now. I still can't that. <laughs> been, been upgraded, done evolved. <laughs> All right, who is next? Who is our next challenger? So our next challenger is John Roberts, and John suggested Echoing Truths specifically for Persistent Petitioners decks. So Echoing Truth has over 1,600 decks currently, but is in 0% of the 690 Persistent Petitioners themed decks. So Echoing Truth is one in a blue for an instant that says return target non-land permanent and all other permanents with the same name as that permanent to its owner's hands. And Persistent Petitioners is that all sorts of tribal, you can put any number of them into a deck and you can basically mill out the table really, really quick with Persistent Petitioners. So John says, hey guys, is it just me or is a two mana part the veil, not an auto include in a theme that's biggest weakness is board wipes and forced chump blocking? Thought it might be worth challenging some stats on. And just listeners, for your reference, Part the Veil is a four mana blue instant that bounces all your creatures to its owner's hand. So this is basically half the mana to do the same effect in Persistent Petitioners or Rats or anything that you have a lot of different creatures with the same name. 
Yeah, and that's that's just really cool because you can save your stuff. And of course, I've been totally blown out in my token decks. I mentioned Titania. And Echoing Truths on someone else's token swarm completely deletes it because you're bouncing and then they all disappear. So like, this is a good offensive card and there's a defensive application. Here for it. Totally here for it. I mean, honestly, I, I, would, I feel like Echoing Truths is probably worth running in just most blue decks in general. Um, it solves so many problems and there's so many times it just blows a token deck completely out. So it's a fantastic card just in general. I think the added synergy of practitioners makes it just that much better. Yeah, I think we talked about it on our uh, show when we had Olivia Gobert-Hicks yeah. on as our guest. Um, mm-hmm. And when we started talking about getting rid of tokens, she was just like, don't touch my tokens. So like, yeah, it it really hurts to have your token swarm get taken out by this. But if there's a defensive application for it too, that's also like totally legit. So I'm absolutely here for it because... Those decks that do have a lot of the same thing, there is a weakness to them. They can be a little dirtily or slow sometimes. And if your entire board of, you know, very creature dedicated deck, if your entire board gets completely destroyed, that sets you all the way back to square one because persistent petitioners and the rat colonies of the world require you to have a certain number of them to them be really effective. And this can help you from having to start back over at square one. Yeah, this is a great, a, a small piece of secret tech that I'm absolutely here for. I, and I also, I'm not 100% Sure, but but I'm I'm like ninety percent sure that this is actually um, Chief Justice John Roberts of the Supreme Court sending us <laughs> in this suggestion. So it feels good to get our first like celebrity letter and <laughs> and challenge as well. So um, thank you, what, Chief Justice. What, on a serious note, um, it is also worth noting. Uh, so with Echoing Truth, if you target your own creature and an opponent has a creature with the same name, mm-hmm. you get to bounce all of those. So I've gotten around Hexproof a couple times. Mm-hmm. I, it was, I think it was a soldier token, and I had two of them, but an opponent had 10. So I bounced 12 creatures, but only two of them are mine because all of their people had Hexproof. Echoing Truth does get around it. So some of those corner case scenarios, it gets really interesting. Yeah. That's really cool. I love it. All right, we're going to move on to our next challenge. This is from David Curtis, who suggested the card Shades Form for the deck Kirik, Son of Yogmoth. Shades Form, again, a card I'd never heard of before, but I really like it. This is a three mana aura. Enchanted creature has, you can pay a black, and this creature gets plus one, plus one until end of turn. And when the enchanted creature is put into a graveyard, return that creature to play under your control. Kyrick, son of Yogmoth, we all know this is the seven mana, makes everything into Phyrexian mana, starts as a 2-2, has lifelink, but you can pay two life instead of the black mana symbols in the costs of your cards, either mana costs or abilities. And whenever you cast a black spell, Kyrick gets a plus one counter. So Shades Form, you can pay two life instead of paying the black mana to buff up Kyrick, attack, lifelink, refund some of that, and this helps protect Kyrick in the event that he might die. Uh, and then David points out that Shades Form is currently played in only six Kyrick decks, including his. It's kind of like a repeatable hatred spell, only as an aura with totem armor. You can make your commander as big as you want for a lethal swing or just gain some life off of K's lifelink if you use your mana for it. And no one has ever seen this card before like me, frankly. So they might just forget that you can one-shot them with this. Uh, A quick note that this number has changed from the six Kyrick decks to about 37 Kyrick decks at the time of recording, but that's still just 2.3% of Kyrick decks total. Guys, I love this aura. This is totally crazy. I'm, I keep saying I'm here for it, but I am here for this. This is really cool. I had a Kyrick deck for a really (laughs) short period of time, and I think I would have loved to play this one. I just, if Joey were any more here for things, <laughs> it, it'd be like a 1997 party where he's trying to raise the roof because that was a thing <laughs> back when people were here in the room. But yes, to David's point, this card is absolutely sweet. Uh, being able to, yes, 
pay some life to pump it up. But then being able to save Kirik is actually probably the most relevant part of this. Sure, being able to pump him up, but Black has other effects that you can increase a creature's power. But when the when the enchanted creature is put in the graveyard, return that creature into play under your control. That's pretty good board wipe protection. So I that's probably going to be one of the undersold parts of Shades Form. Yeah, it's the fact that it's got both of those abilities. And especially, here's the other thing. You don't just have to put this on Kirik. You can put this on someone else's creature. And if it dies, it goes Ooh. back to the battlefield under your <laughs> control still, not the owner's control. So there's another use on top of it. Like, this is a that's, rule. Oh, that's so good. That's like the Kaya's ghost form interaction that I've been playing yeah. around with Arena. I'll steal people's creatures, sacrifice it, and then it comes back under, you know, into play under my control permanently. Well, we talked about how shielding plaques is the kind of thing people maybe tend to skip over because they default to assuming you don't want auras unless you're in a deck with mm -hmm. added synergy. The same thing is probably true here to a degree. I think everyone defaults to thinking in terms of the casting cost with, with Kirik's ability versus an activated ability on a relatively obscure aura. Again, mm -hmm. auras that you tend to not run. So I think we're looking at like the a, a double effect here where it's really easy to not even think to look for this kind of card in the first place. Yeah. And oh, it's, man. it is really absolutely a bomb in this deck. I would 100% run Shades for him in a Kyrick deck. Yeah, I'm sorry that my voice has gone so high-pitched, but I'm really impressed by this pick, <laughs> and I really like Mono Black. I don't know what to say. You could almost say you're here for it, Joey. I could almost say I'm here for it. In fact, I think I might be. All right, we're going to move on to our final challenge. This comes from Jack, who asked to just go by Jack. Uh, but Jack, we did play against Jack in Vegas when he had an Orzov Daxos deck. It was a whole bunch of fun. Jack, it was really great to play with you. And we love that you are giving us another challenge, because this one, you put forward a really cool and interesting sort of a, a thought puzzle for us that we wanted to end the show on. So Jack writes, with the addition of new keyword counters, and since War of the Spark, the larger number of Planeswalkers, which also have tons of counters, in almost all EDH decks nowadays, I feel like there's no reason that Hex Parasite, which is one of the only ways to remove counters in multiple uses, should still just show up in only 1% of decks. For one colorless mana, this black colored artifact is one of the only ways to remove counters from target permanent in EDH. A strong case can be made that it should now be an auto-include in any black deck, and it only costs about a dollar on any of the sites, uh, any of like TCG Player Card Kingdom. Uh, please consider telling the world about this underloved card. Hex Parasite, as uh, he mentioned that's a one mana, one, one artifact creature. It does have a black Phyrexian mana symbol on it, so it can only be played in black decks. Uh, you can pay X and a Phyrexian black mana to remove up to X counters from target permanent, and then Hex Parasite gets plus one until end of turn for each counter removed that way. So you can get rid of those loyalty counters or the new keyword counters. And this is a really neat one. I'm not sure that I would call it necessarily an auto-include, but it is pointing out a really cool thing that we wanted to end here. Just a final question for you guys. If anything from Ikoria, especially those new keyword counters, are any of these inspiring you to look back at old cards or cards like Hex Parasite and change things up a little bit? Like, how is your deck building shifting? How are the stats being challenged in your brain now that we have a new set that is bringing a bunch of new stuff with it? How are you responding to the meta? And does it involve stuff like Hex Parasite or other cards like that? Because that is a really fascinating thing. We're in eternal format, but new sets make a huge impact. And sometimes we respond to those sets too with new tech or even old secret tech like this. So I thought this was really fascinating and I just wanted to talk about it with you guys because it just seems like a cool thought experiment. Well, we know that Dana isn't thinking about Hex Parasite because that's too new for him to think about. <laughs> He's got to go back even further like we did uh, last week with his Anna Sanctuary. I actually, um, Matt, in a game we, <laughs> we played on stream last week, 
cast Hex Parasite and use it to take counters off Joey's Venser. Yeah, you did. Yeah, you did. Um, I if you have a Cathrol, the Aspect Warper deck in your playgroup, absolutely you want to be playing Hex Parasite because you're going to be taking all those keyword counters because Cathrol, that's the keyword soup where you put every sort of counter that you can scribble on a piece of paper onto all your creatures. So yeah, Hex Parasite's definitely going to be very, very good if you have a lot of Akoria cards roaming around. Uh, definitely something to keep in mind. As far as looking back, we know how slow I am to adjust decks. So <laughs> I have not started that process personally, but there have been some wheels turning just for the specific decks that I am brewing myself. Yeah, another card that Hex Parasite has always made me think of is Thief of Blood, the six mana one one with flying. It's a vampire. When it enters the battlefield, you remove all counters from all permanents, whether they're loyalty counters or keyword counters or plus one counters. And then for each of those counters that's removed, Thief of Blood gets a plus one counter. So this can be a really huge, really, really big beater, but it's also just a one-time effect unless you're able to blink or reanimate it or something like that. And Hex Parasite is repeatable, so it can continually shut down a deck like Planeswalkers. And that persistence is actually really, really powerful. The one-time effects can be great, but also just repeatedly keeping someone off of their super friend's game plan can be really great. In the wake of War of the Spark, I think this was especially powerful. And now in the wake of Keyword Counters, this might be another cool piece of tech. And I just think that's such a great way to respond to new stuff, uh, to, to new stuff, just not to only play the new stuff, but also to like sort of respond to the stuff that you know that is going to make a big impact and prepare for it. And this is just a great example of preparation. There's also a lot of utility in this card beyond even the things we just talked about. I use it pretty frequently to take counters off of sagas that I've cast. So oh. I can keep using the good abilities without having them get destroyed. Um, and um, it's also a really good card to use as a life sink, so to speak. I've seen it in Marchesa decks before <laughs> who want to get off the throne. And they just use the ability just to sacrifice life so they can get down and, and get off the throne to attack somebody else. Oh, I'm going to put this into my Graven deck. Oh, life loss becomes power yeah. for Graven. Oh, Dana, you're a dangerous person. <laughs> this is, oh, I love this. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great card in general. Yeah, but, but Joey, make sure when you're playing Grevin, um, don't put yourself down to like two life when there's an Omnath player out. I'm just going to throw I'll, that I'll out I'll make there. sure that I don't repeat the same mistakes that we've done in our, our stream, which by the way, folks, should totally check out our Idiot Trekcast stream. We stream every Wednesday uh, around 6 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. It's been a lot of fun. Really awesome guests that we've uh, had on. It we've has. had uh, Olivia. We're going to have Corbin on from Brainstorm Brewery. It's really, really awesome. But yes, uh, Matt sometimes sacrifices his Omnath elemental tokens when I have put myself down to a precariously low life total in my black decks, and then it really ruins my day but it's a lot of fun see discard can be a good thing and life loss can also be a good thing <laughs> well I'll, I'll take your word for it <laughs> really this this has been such an exciting show you guys because as you can tell i've been really excited about it because this just feels like this is what edh rec is all about is finding those cool hidden gems and to see how this particular segment has resonated with all of our listeners and the cool stuff that they are able to bring out and find those unexpected cards and those neat small synergies that provide just a little bit of an extra edge i have just absolutely loved this and i'm so happy that all of our listeners are loving the challenge of stats and that they've got so many cool ideas this is just this has been a this is easily one of my favorite episodes if you can't tell i am here for it i absolutely love it these are such <laughs> cool cards these are such great uh, pieces of advice from so many awesome folks joey i've never felt you so compelled as <laughs> as this episode right here it's awesome. I'm just saying this was really great. Listeners, thank you guys so much for uh, emailing us with these awesome challenges. It's been really great. This was so, so much fun. And I guess now, unfortunately, we have to call this episode to a close. But thank you again uh, for 
these really cool. Uh, we, we hope that they keep coming. Like seriously, reach out to us yes. for more challenges because this has been an absolute treat. We are learning just as much from you guys. It's really, really cool. So thank you to the listeners. And also thank you to you guys, Dana and Matt, for joining me. If our listeners want to get in touch with us, where can they find you all? So you can find me on the Twitters at Mathemus55 and you can find us streaming EDH games every Wednesday. And that's at twitch.tv slash EDH you can find me on the Twitter birds at Dana Roach, and I am also available a couple times a week on my other podcast, CMDR Central. And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on Facebook or on Twitter. If you've got a question, a keen insight to EDHREC's data, or if you want to join all of the awesome listeners from today's episode who provided us with these cool, you know, underplayed gems, or if you think the cards are being played too much. If you've got a challenge that you want to submit for the next time we do a show like this, then you can email us at edhretcast at gmail.com. Seriously, this was so, so much fun. Uh, we really need to thank again all of the folks over at Command Zone, Josh LeQuine, the whole Command Zone team for handling the post-production work on the podcast. And of course, we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and Card Kingdom. You can find them using the price info links on EDHREC or by visiting cardkingdom.com slash It shows your support for the show and it's just really awesome. They're great services. We love them and we love that they help us out. Ah, such good stuff, guys. I'm really feeling it. I'm totally here for it this episode. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights and, of course, more challenges stats. But until then, remember, EDH record deck before you wreck your deck.